thank you all for coming once again. We um, once again I keep thinking we need a bigger room, but anyway, it's nice to have you all here. And it's my pleasure to welcome Manuel Eisner, who's come over from Cambridge today to speak to us. Uh, Manuel is the Wolfson Professor of Criminology at the Institute of Criminology at the University of Cambridge, where he's also the director of the Violence <coughs> Research Centre. His research interests include the comparison of violence across societies and over time, the dynamics of human development and antisocial behaviour, and the prevention of violence, which is what we'll be talking to us about today. So now we'll speak for about an hour, we'll have about half an hour of questions. Thank you. So first of all, thanks a lot for inviting me to, to talk here. This is... Um, really a fantastic opportunity to share some of my thoughts and ideas with you in, in the coming uh, hour or so. Uh, I, I, I would also like to say that I'm particularly grateful to Roger Hood, who uh, invited me almost 20 years ago uh, to come here for the very first time when I was just arri- had just arrived in the UK, and, and he invited me to give a talk here uh, in, in the very early days. When he saw the title... He thought, well, I'd already talked about rough, something roughly similar 20 years ago. And so the answer is, this is not the same paper as the one that I presented 20 years ago. And it's not the case. <laughs> it is not the case that I've been working on this uh, for the last 20 years. But, but I should say, uh, looking at the title, that... What I will be talking about today is, in a sense, a sequel to a conference that I organized some five years ago, four and a half years ago in Cambridge in 2014, which was roughly about this topic. What should we do to reduce levels of violence globally by 50% in 20 years or so? And, and the way and this was organized together with the World Health Organization, and one of the things that we did at the beginning of this conference was to show a pound note and to say, well, if you, if we as criminologists would have to put our money on something, let's assume we're giving some money to spend on reducing levels of violence, where would money go? What would we prioritize? And what do we think we believe is effective? Now, I was just talking to we criminologists. I have a question here. Which, are there any astrophysicists in the room? <laughs> no. Okay. Now, this, is, this was just... This, was a, this, is, this is not clear why I was, uh, I was asking the question. My daughter is currently studying astrophysics here, but she's not here. But she said she would ask some students whether they would be interested in coming to my talk. So I was just curious. <laughs> I was just curious whether um, uh, anybody had found a way to come here. So, so, so here is the background uh, of this research question. And this is also, by the way, why we organized this conference in 2014. In uh, 2012, there was this big summit, the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development in Rio, which was designed to develop what would, be, would become known as the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. The Sustainable Development Goals 
are following up on the Millennium Development Goals, which were introduced in 2000. There were eight Millennium Development Goals. And the basic idea was to focus attention on just some big overarching goals that would be relevant for everybody on this globe and that we should work towards achieving. And so after this had been quite successful, or perceived to have been quite successful, in June 2012 there was this next summit that was to develop the next round of goals. You can see here, like with all things on earth, there is inflation, uh, also with goals. They started with eight goals, and for the next period it turned into 17 goals developed after an extensive consultation process and then adopted in September 2015. Now, why is this relevant for criminology? Uh, you know, probably most of you now think about um, climate change, hunger, health, and so on. Well, it is relevant for criminology because actually the Sustainable Development Goals have done something quite revolutionary for the first time ever in human history, there is somebody saying, well, we should actually try to reduce levels of violence at a global level. So here are the 17 sustainable development goals, end poverty, no hunger, good health, and so on and so forth. But hidden in these goals, so there's these overarching goals, and there are targets and indicators. I just want to briefly show you how this functions there are a number of goals that are very specifically about reducing violence. Here are the goals, uh, uh, the, the targets. So, for instance, among quality education, there is a target that says that governments and non-government organizations across the world should try to create safe environments for children to have a safe learning environment. Under gender equality... There is this target to eliminate all forms of violence against all women and girls in public and private spheres. Now, just for a second, probably everybody's reaction is, well, we're not going to eliminate all forms of violence in the next 15 or 20 years. Now, although this language is aspirational, it's very relevant, um, and, and it has led to a number of initiatives that are really very, very important. Then there is Goal 16, Peace and Justice, which actually I tend to call the criminology goal. You may not have known so far, but in the Sustainable Development Goals, there is one goal that is almost entirely relevant to criminology. And whenever I say this, I also add that I'm quite disappointed overall, and maybe I'm talking to not to the right audience here, that criminology as a discipline has not really picked up on this fact. You know, there is something about justice, there is something about corruption, and there is, some, there is a number of goals related to violence. There is 16.1 significantly reduce all forms of violence and related death rates. 16.2 ending abuse, exploitation, trafficking of all forms of violence and torture against children. Now, what has happened over the last few years is that these targets have been turned into indicators, measurable indicators, with the idea of actually being able to track progress. I just want to show you here two, just, just, uh, two indicators, just so that you get an idea. And, and they're not perfect, but what they do is to create a, an environment, a push for governments to actually try to measure these things and international organization. So, for instance, measuring the percentage of children who've experienced 
physical punishment or psychological aggression by caregivers in the past month, or, for instance, the percentage of young women and men aged 18 to 29 years who experienced sexual violence. So this is um, just to show you how, how, how you, the United Nations, WHO, UNODC, uh, UNICEF are trying to develop measurable indicators that track progress along these goals. So I want to show you something about the size of the problem uh, at the global level, so, so that you get an idea of where we're starting. I should say here that all these data are estimates. We don't really exactly know where our starting point is, but this just gives you a rough idea where we are coming from. Currently, the estimate for the, homicide, for the number of homicides worldwide is about 430,000. Probably just one important thing here, if you think about homicides, they account for a vastly larger number of violent deaths than all wars taken together. And that's despite, for instance, the war in Syria, they account for a much larger number of de violent deaths uh, than uh, armed conflict. Roughly 30% of women aged 15 and over have experienced once, at least once in a lifetime, physical and sexual intimate partner violence. And roughly 54%, that comes out of a very recent systematic review, roughly 54% of children under age 18 have experienced violence in the past year. It sometimes helps to translate this into absolute numbers. That's 800 million women and the roughly 1 billion children who have experienced violence just in the last year. One of the reasons why this is relevant for a number of other targets is that victimization has a number of negative consequences. And, and I just want to briefly show you an overview of some of the consequences of violent victimization. They relate to internalizing symptoms. They relate to a number of physical health symptoms, um, substance use, and so on and so forth. This is just to show that violence has a number of costs that go far beyond just the mere kind of injury that's caused by the victimization. Some people have tried to come up with estimates of the economic costs of violence. And I'm not sure whether I trust these data. It's not because the estimates are coming from Oxford. But, it's, <laughs> but, but, but there is, you know, it's just hugely difficult to really realistically estimate these numbers. But those estimates that are floating around are very, very large. So, so here are just a few figures that suggest that maybe something between 1% and 4 or 5% of GDP are the total economic costs of interpersonal violence. Here you can see that in comparison to collective violence, it's vastly larger and it's roughly equivalent so, to the total GDP of the United Kingdom. These costs are not equally distributed across the world. And I think I just want to show you a few slides on the regional distribution of these costs. One of the ways to do this is to show you a map of the world by the number of homicides. When you look at the map of the world by the number of homicides, you will see that Latin America is huge. Um, about 45% of all 
Murder cases are concentrated in just about 10 countries in the world and, and Central America and the north of Latin America is very big and Africa is very big. While Europe, uh, here we have the UK, um, is very small. I want to show you, just to get you thinking, a comparison to where the knowledge is worldwide. So I'll show you the next map on the number of academic papers produced across the world. This is what the world looks like if you look at it in terms of economic output. And I just, this is not specifically criminology, and things are shifting gradually, but I just want to show this to you because what it alerts us to is that the knowledge is not where the problem lies, and that does apply to the entire debate around violence and violence prevention. I just show you additionally this slide so that just to bring down the argument that this is. This is just about the argument that this is not just limited to homicide. These are regional differences in sexual abuse cases, according to a recent review by Siva Kumar and others uh, from the No Violence uh, Initiative. And what it shows you is that, broadly speaking, irrespective of what you're looking at, whether you're looking at intimate partner violence or bullying or sexual violence, low and middle income countries tend to be higher and we in industrial societies tend to be lowest overall. There are exceptions, there are different patterns, but overall that's the root, broadly uh, the pattern. So, so I'm coming back now to the sustainable development goals. What have we achieved? What has, have these goals done? And, and where are we going? I think over the last decade or so, well, maybe over the last five years, there's been quite a lot of progress towards working towards, these sustainable, towards achieving these sustainable development goals. And I think it's important to recognize these, this progress. There's been a growth in available data. This is for one, just a very important, impressive progress. You know, there are now uh, violence against children surveys in about 20 countries. The demographic and health surveys in low and middle income countries provide information now on female victimization of intimate partner violence for about 40 or 50 countries, and so on and so forth. There are more evaluation studies conducted outside Europe and the United States. When I looked at this first, for the first time about five or six years ago, roughly 97% of all evaluation studies have been conducted in the United States or in Europe. There is now a growing number of studies that are conducted in, low and middle, in, in various low and middle income countries, partly because some major philanthropic organizations are putting their uh, resources behind this. There is a development of global information systems. Um, V-Info, if you're interested, is, is something developed by the World Health Organization. And it's quite impressive as a resource because you get... Sorry, sir, to interrupt the class. Um, does anyone here own a black bicycle which is attached to the railings at the front? If so, it will be needed, but we'll have to remove it because it's causing an obstacle. Okay, thank you. Sorry, sir. No worries. I'm interrupting. I just move this because I keep worrying about it. I think this is the right thing for you know, deviant acts for a criminology. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
There is an increasing diffusion of a public health approach to addressing violence, so kind of like not just focusing on criminal justice approaches, not just thinking about improve, increasing punitiveness, but thinking about public health approaches to addressing um, problems related to violence. Uh, and there is global monitoring of violence prevention efforts. For instance, Alex Butchard and Chris Mickton, who pr published the first global status report on violence prevention in 2014. The next one is going to come out in the next few months, which will also track progress in what has been done in roughly 140 countries. Again, the data may not be perfect, but what they do, and that's, by the way, inherited from the success of traffic accident um, uh, prevention, that making countries just report on what they're doing makes them do things. You know, so just, just the public visibility of what is happening has a kind of like creates a moral climate whereby countries tend to do more. So there is a growing toolbox of prevention strategies. I just want to show you one example of what is being done. And so this is something that I'm working with quite a lot. It's called INSPIRE, which is one of these acronyms uh, that people have to invent all the time to make, make others interested. Um, INSPIRE was developed by WHO and the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with an involvement of a number of other organizations. And what it does is to present a kind of like, it's a recipe book. It's interesting. I can, I can highly recommend to actually take this seriously, look at it. It's a recipe book. It has now a technical report that talks about how to implement these programs um, to help the, with the implementation program. Uh, and, and, and it also provides recommendations on monitoring and evaluation. One of the assumptions that this INSPIRE framework makes, and that's a critical assumption, I'll come back to this, is the assumption that we know enough about the causes of violence, that we can actually do the right thing without having to replicate all kinds of risk factor studies in different countries. That's an interesting assumption, and that would be interesting to talk about whether that's effectively true. Um, and I'm, as to myself, I'm split on this. I want to just go through, do, through these uh, seven strategies, just with one example for each strategy, so that you can see what they're trying to do. For instance, they say, under I, implement laws that ban corporal punishment. Implement education and community mobilization programs against different types of violence, for instance, against female genital mutilation, and changing norms and values in a society as one important pillar that can create a moral climate that's more averse uh, to violence. Creating safe environments, for instance, target hotspots and create safe built environments. Parent and caregiver support provide parent training programs in different societies. Income and economic strengthening. So the argument is that there is sufficient evidence to argue that violence is created, violence can be prevented, can be reduced by income and economic strengthening programs. So implement cash transfer programs. Response and support services, improve child protection services, and finally, implement life and social skills training. So that's, roughly speaking, this package that WHO has put together. And I think one of the big questions here is, um, 
I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm not arguing against the Inspire framework, but one of the questions is, well, is this the right thing to do? Is this where we should put our money to actually re- achieve large-scale you know, population-wide reductions in violence? And I just want to uh, follow this line and, and ask a few questions about what else we need than just implementing the INSPIRE framework, which I think is interesting. I find it useful. I will come back to this again. But I don't think it's everything that we need. So now I'm going back to what Roger was talking about, long-term big trends. Um, I think we need to better understand what causes, what drives macro-level trends in violence. And I just want to explain here that this is not the same thing as understanding why one individual or a group of individuals or a classroom becomes more or less violent. This is a different thing. And and I just want to um, uh, explain very briefly why. So here is a number of programs. This is all these programs that's kind of like inherited from this Inspire framework. That's the kind of things that are in our toolbox. And the question is, should we think about wider system change as something that is really important to achieve these goals? Now, the way I want to, I, I want to show you here one thing, uh, just one example of how to think about this. This is the, my human society's homicide scale. I just want to explain to you here, those of you who are not that familiar with statistics, now, this scale is a logarithmic scale, so for every white line, it multiplies the homicide rate by a factor of 10. And so I can line up all the human societies, all the countries, on a vertical axis that just lines up all 198 countries for which, for which there are estimates on this vertical axis. This is the current global average, roughly uh, 6.4 per 100,000, roughly 8 million deaths since 2000. And you can also see, by the way, that um, is this here. Oh, here are a number of countries, just so that you get an impression. Singapore is at the very bottom with a homicide rate of about 0.2 per 100,000. Honduras here, that these are data for about 2005, is at the top with almost 100, which is important. So homicide across the world varies by a factor of about 1 to 500. That's at the country level. If you break this down at the neighborhood level, it's 1 to 1,000 or 1 to 2,000. Huge differences across the world. And so here in the middle you have the United States and so on. Now, that's just what I was just saying. And I just want to do one thing. I want to compare two countries that are currently roughly at the polar opposites of this scale. This down here is Singapore, and this one up here is Jamaica. Now I'm going to do some historical wizardry, and I'll show you the trends in homicide rates in these two countries. I'll start with, with Singapore. Now, the interesting thing is, I mean, you all know that Singapore now has this reputation of being this uh, paradise, um, you know, Disneyland with the death penalty is one of the um, labels that Singapore has. But it was, it had a reputation for being a very violent society. You can see here, for instance, around the 1920s and in the late 19th century, it was 
well known for being having a lot of uh, organized crime, a lot of drug use problems, and so on and so forth. Now, let's compare this to Jamaica. Now, the interesting, so for bo- by the way, for both countries, we have reasonably defensible data because the colonial authorities, one of the things they wanted to do that is, is to just count whatever was they could count. And, and one of the things that they did produce were these blue books, uh, and, and they exist for both countries. Now, one of the most astonishing things about this is until independence, 1960, the two countries have almost identical homicide rates. By the way, also, these two countries have almost identical GDP per capita in, 90, in the late 1950s. They have almost identical literacy rates, uh, roughly 70%, and they have um, a number of other things. They have all sim- very similar levels of, for instance, informal housing. Both Singapore and Jamaica had a large number of informal settlements. And so they were very, very similar in very many respects. And then they go into opposite directions. And so I'm, I'm showing this to you because I think, well, if you want to achieve population-wide reductions in violence... We don't have to like Singapore. I'm not saying that you have to like Singapore, but understanding what has been happening in these two societies is relevant for <coughs> making reasonably good recommendations. Now, I just want to show you a few ideas about what may have been relevant. In Singapore, there's been a lot of effort in control of corruption. That was one of the... Lee Kuan Yew, the first president of, of, of Singapore, one of the very first things that he was really keen on was control corruption. Create a civil service that was not corrupt, that was meritocratic, and that was well-trained and was well-paid. Invest a lot of investment into education... Uh, and low segregation. Singapore has almost no segregation. I don't think personally, but interestingly, Singaporeans themselves disagree with me, the death penalty probably didn't really play an important role in this whole story. But that would be another interesting story to tell. Um, Jamaica goes a different pathway. One of the things that already started in the 1940s and then increased around independence is clientelistic violent politics. So parties that by votes uh, try to get their own members into the state, serv- uh, state, state system and fight for control over power using violence. And that leads to distrusted violent police. Just one number here. I mean, just bear in mind, you know, um, Jamaica is about a third of the size of London, and just the number of people killed by the police is around 200 to 300 per year. That's just the number of people killed by the police. In Singapore, um, over the last 20 years, they count a total of 10 killings committed by the police. And so this is roughly a variance by 1 to 1,000 between these two countries. So what are the research implications? The many, I think we need, so I'll just boil this down in one sentence. I think we need to learn more about what drives these changes, these trends in violence rates. I'm not saying we're particularly good at it. We're usually surprised when trends change. In the UK, we have exactly this this problem. For 20 years, 
it was quite easy to predict what was going to happen. The trend was going down, and we were all saying, well, it's going down, and Stephen Pinker wrote a book that violence is going down, and all of a sudden it starts going up again, and nobody was really... Nobody really understands why all of a sudden this change of, in, in the trend happens. But maybe some of you do. So, so I think we need to improve methodology. We need to better understand what drives these large-scale trends. Secondly, I think we need to develop a better understanding of universal causal mechanisms. So move beyond a number of programs and really try to do good basic science. I think that's the basic argument here. Uh, and, and, and basic science that can bridge this gap between macro and micro level. And I just want to talk about one mechanism that I am getting increasingly interested in um, and, and I find quite interesting this revenge mechanism where I, I, I tend to think that um, in human brains, especially in male human brains, there is a, something that is a revenge mechanism that, that's evolved, that, that produces violence and there are environmental triggers that make this revenge mechanism happen or not. The revenge mechanism is something very useful in human societies for a number of reasons. It deters aggressors from acts of violence, it prevents attackers from attacking again, and it prevents egoistic actors from free-riding. Um, uh, and, and there is a number of consistent theories that predict that such a revenge mechanism should exist. I just want to show you one thing that links the victimization relating to this revenge mechanism. We've just submitted a paper on this, which you can actually already read about the effects of violent victimization on violent fantasies. In Zurich, which is, by the way, I come, I come from Zurich. Zurich is a reasonably peaceful society. Reasonably peaceful. So, but we're running a longitudinal study. We've been running this for 15 years now, and at age 17 we asked the young people whether they fantasize about killing others. Now, <laughs> now one of the outcomes of this is that if these young men and women all acted on their fantasies, Switzerland would be wiped out in about three and a half months. <laughs> now, that leads to the question, why? Does the human brain, especially the adolescent human brain, produce so many violent fantasies? Now, one of the mechanisms I think that plays a role, there are other mechanisms, is that victimization, and that's the revenge mechanism. You're being victimized, somebody treats you badly, somebody bullies you, somebody assaults you, that this makes you think, this makes you wish to pay back, to retaliate. And that's something, by the way, that's something different from that just getting angry. So here is the number of violent fantasies that young men have as a function of the number of victimization. And this is, by the way, the same thing for, for, for females. So for both females and males, the number of violent fantasies goes up as they are more likely to be victimized. Less so for girls uh, than for men. So what is the associated macro mechanism? I don't have enough time really to talk oops, about this in much detail, but I want to show you just two slides that actually take us back to my talk uh, 16 years ago. Um, and, but I, I'll, this is just one part. So, so one of the things that I've been interested in for quite a long time is these 
big pattern long-term homicide trends and again you know trying to understand why what is happening here this is the homicide rates per 100,000 over the last 800 years and um, and what you should be able to see here as I display these figures for uh, increasing number of countries is that homicide rates across Europe have been consistently going down from the roughly 1400 to about 2000. It's one of the longest social science trends and most consistent social science trends that I think we find anywhere. With some regional variation, the south of Europe starts later than the north of Europe. And one of the things that I'm interested in is why this decline happened. And one of the hypotheses by Norbert Elias is that it happened because the increase in control over elite violence led to an increase in control over vengeance as a mechanism of solving conflict. So essentially if you say, you know, the good news is for those of us who believe in the rule of law, that as rule of law, some kind of like established state starts to function, private revenge becomes replaced by a number of push and pull factors. And so to test this, I um, got my children to do some slave work for me, and, and, and so we started coding all killed kings. This started in a, in a gloomy Sunday morning when we were wondering, well, how many British kings had been killed? And so this then led us to kind of like... Um, do this a little bit more, and, and we ended up coding roughly 1,700 monarchs in Europe. Uh, why do you, well, here, here is the thing, I mean, with these 1,700 monarchs. If you are looking at a regular population, uh, this is a good quiz, quiz question, what is the most dangerous occupation on earth? And the answer to this question is being a monarch. Um, and I just want to show you, well, just briefly, um, 1,700 people, if you monitor a village of 1,700 people for an entire generation in modern Britain, how many people would you expect to die from violence? Well, the answer is about half a person. Now, fortunately for us, monarchs were much more productive field. We ended up having 218 monarchs out of these 1,600 ended up being murdered. And so if you look at this over time, the frequency of killing monarchs became much, much lower over a long period of time. That's actually 1,200 years. And one of the reasons behind this is that transition, the transition of power from one generation to the other became much more rule-bound, much more regularized. It became much more difficult to kill your brother, to kill somebody from a different um, family, and then accede to power. And so there is an interesting, I, I just want to show this to you. This is the red line here is the trend in homicide rates and the blue line is the trend in regicides. And what you should be able to see here is that the decline in regicide, the decline in elite violence preceded in time the decline in homicide rates. So the argument here, and again, you know, try to remember this inspire framework. The argument here is that we need to think about these macro structures, you know, state building structures. What is the state about and what makes it a good state? A state where people willingly 
do not take private revenge, but willingly accept state conflict resolution mechanisms to find ways of resolving conflict. I think that's the basic argument here. And, and so, so the argument is, this is not included in this fire framework, but it's something important that one needs to think about. A third proposal that I think we need to, I believe we need to think more about is that we need to bridge the gap between law enforcement, criminal justice and public health systems. Now, I'm usually these days talking more to people in public health than in the law enforcement sector. I'm kind of like a deviant criminologist, um, if you will. But I just want to emphasize that very often in the public health sector, people just do not like the police. And they don't like prisons. I think criminologists generally don't like the police and the prisons either, but this is, this is a different... The, 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 I think the problem here is, and that leads me back to the problem of, of revenge in a sense, that in the public health sector, there is a belief that the criminal justice system, including police, including prisons, are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And that leads to a complete, almost a complete, for instance, rejection of interagency collaboration between criminal justice actors and public health actors. And I go to public health conferences, there is not a single person from criminology there. When I go to criminology conferences, there is almost never an actor from the public health sector there. Um, and, and so I think we need to bridge this gap between these two ways of thinking about it. Why is this important? I mean, here I'm, I'm just bringing up a few arguments about why the criminal justice sector is. So this slide is actually made for public health people to understand why the criminal justice sector is important. And I just want to come back to the revenge topic with this oh the numbering is entirely wrong uh, with this second point one um, which is about the, the, this problem with punishment that I, I, I sometimes want to try to explain. I showed you before that Honduras and El Salvador have some of the highest homicide rates in the world and sometimes when I go to public health um, sector seminars I ask well what do you think if somebody commits a homicide in Honduras? What is the average prison length that you have to expect for killing somebody? Or what should it be? Now the answer to the average prison length is about four months. Why is it an average four months? Because the impunity rate is about 96%. And so if you think about this in terms of the value of life, that's relatively low. And the question is, does this partly contribute to the problem? And so, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a, the argument here is, where the state fails to provide protection, victims will seek the help of others, for example, gangs. And there is a number of ideas about how to improve collaboration between the public health sector and the criminal justice sector. Jonathan Shepard from Cardiff University is one of the leading figures to kind of try to push this agenda of better collaboration between public health and criminal justice. 
sector. And I just want to show you very briefly his Cardiff data sharing model, which probably many of you are familiar with. Are you? Okay. So some nodding, some not nodding. So the Cardiff data sharing model is a very, very simple model. It just says, well, many of the victims of violence never show up in the police data. They don't go to the police. They go to a hospital because they're injured, but they don't, are not visible to the police data. And so what, they, what he's suggesting is more collaboration between the public health sector, between hospitals and the criminal justice sector to get better data that can drive better, more targeted intervention. Now, the fourth proposal is to highlight limitations of what we understand when we make recommendations to policymakers. Now, this goes back to my own experiences with having run some randomized control trials. And I don't know what I do wrong. Every one of my randomized control trials always ends up having nil findings. And then I'm kind of like confronted with this problem. How do you communicate this problem? And so this is about trying to make a moral argument communicating where we have a limitation in our knowledge. Here is the example of early prevention. Early prevention, everybody loves it. You know, just start early in the first years of life. Uh, and here are just a few examples. Here is the Allen report early. If you remember the Allen report, that was this report with the healthy brain and the small brain. And the small brain was kind of like, this was the message exposed to early you know, neglect and maltreatment. And the brain doesn't develop properly. And there is the healthy brain. And early prevention will help reducing crime and so on. How solid is the evidence? Um, well, I actually think that it's not that solid at all. Um, it, and, and we run into a number of kind of like difficult problems. Well, some childhood risk factors are not really causes, but they're kind of like symptoms of an underlying propensity. You know, so, so some childhood things like hyperactivity, difficult temperament, can just be symptoms of an underlying problem that just changes the way it looks as children become older. Um, some risk factors that we think are true early childhood risk factors may just be markers of a causal mechanism that we don't understand. If we say, well, I don't know, being male is a risk factor. Well, male is just a placeholder for something that we don't really understand what is going on there. If we say poverty is a risk factor, what is really going on there behind this kind of like label that we're using? Some things that we believe are risk factors may actually be effects of child behavior. And finally, for almost all these putative childhood risk factors, we don't really know which one are causal and malleable. And we don't know whether they replicate. I want to show you one study that I was involved in with Joe Murray, who is now in, uh, in, in Pelotas in Brazil, where we looked at, we tried to do a systematic review of all longitudinal studies that we could find on the effects of childhood risk factors on later aggressive behavior. 
And the one thing that I just couldn't believe is how inconsistent the findings are. And, and I just wanted to um, show you some of the, some of the unexpected findings. Um, you know, many of the assumed early childhood risk factors where you would think, well, this is clearly established, everybody knows that this is the case, were just not replicated in some of these studies. And we don't understand why this is happening. Why does exposure to prenatal and postnatal malnutrition, tobacco and alcohol consume uh, during pregnancy, birth complications, brain injury, exposure to toxins, they're all not really predictive of behavior problems later on. This is not an argument, just to make this clear, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't do something about all these problems. But I'm just arguing the empirical evidence is not as clear-cut as sometimes public policy documents make us believe. Uh, oh yes, and this was another thing. Yeah. Many assume social deprivation indicators, like poor education achievement, large family size, low maternal education, for reasons that we don't really understand in these big longitudinal studies, just didn't work as neatly as many of us in the room would probably believe they do. And we don't really understand why. And so the only argument here is that really developmental prevention is popular. Many people want to invest in this. I am fully in support of investing in this. But there is many developmental mechanisms that we don't really understand. Most longitudinal studies have been conducted in so-called weird countries, in Western high-income countries. We're generalizing to low-income contexts, to other cultures that function in a very different way, and we don't really know whether the evidence is strong enough to, that, to make sure that we're doing the right kind of thing. And that leads me, if I have another 10 minutes or so, yeah, okay, um, that leads me to talking the last bit of this talk to talk a little bit about a project that I'm currently involved in and very busy with and, and quite enthusiastic about um, that links to this entire discussion. It was developed, and we sta I started thinking about this in 2014 as a result of this conference and I'm still interested in making this work. So this is kind of like looking out into the future. We call it Evidence for Better Lives, uh, and the subtitle is a global cohort study to tackle violence against children. And I just want to briefly show you what this study is all about. Evidence for Better Lives has three main components. So what we want to do, and that links to what I was just saying before with this slide, we want to contribute to better knowledge about causal mechanisms associated with the effects of violence against children, but also the mechanisms that are associated with poor child outcomes in terms of psychosocial and actually physical health. So that we can better support psychosocial development from the beginning of life. Uh, I, I should say here that I'm actually of the view with this perspective that we shouldn't think too narrowly about 
criminology in this context at all. You will see in a minute that I'm actually in this study the only criminologist, uh, and, and all others are coming from other disciplines, and I think we need to keep engaging in this interdisciplinary discourse. Discourse. We want to have policy impact from the beginning, so we're working with eight cities, and we want to make sure that the knowledge that we generate in this study will be disseminate and influence national and international violence reduction policies and practices. And finally, we believe that relates to the map that I showed you with the gap between where the problem lies and where the, um, where the knowledge is. We want to contribute to capacity building and effectively work with partners in low and middle income countries to strengthen the ability to better understand what the problems are and how to better address them. The sites of this study... Uh, so here are the sites of this study. Uh, we spent about a year identifying the studies and the study partners. I just want to briefly go through them. Uh, so uh, I should say for here first, we were initially thinking when we started with this study to focus on big cities, Mexico City, uh, Karachi. Uh, and, and, but increasingly it became clear that in these very big global cities, it's just almost impossible to do a longitudinal study. And we also thought that, and I was partly influenced by what I learned working with the municipality in Zurich, that a medium -sized, in a medium-sized city, the chances of actually engaging policymakers in decision-making, in, in exchange with academics, are much bigger than in a large, in a large city. So we are focusing on medium-sized cities. And the places are... Uh, oops. The places are, the finger is still best. Um, the places are Kingston in Jamaica with a very high homicide rate, Koferidwa, which is a little bit about 80 kilometers north of Accra in Ghana, uh, Stellenbosch, uh, slightly north of um, Cape Town in South Africa, Cluj Napokab, which is the second largest city in Romania. Parlai Kalam, which is um, a satellite city outside Islamabad in Pakistan. Ragama, which is uh, outside Colombo, but also almost a suburb of, of Colombo. Hue, which is in the middle of Vietnam. And Valenzuela City, which is a city outside Manila. And so what we are trying to do is to learn from these cities and from doing good research about what drives child development? What are the, if, is the, are the effects of exposure to violence? Uh, here is one, just one thing that I would like to mention here. I was saying at some stage that we need to better overcome the gap between macro and micro level criminology. What is, are the big fact, contextual factors and what are the micro level factors? Most longitudinal studies can't do this. Because most, almost all, I, I think all longitudinal studies are really just looking at children growing up within one society. Right? So you have all the things that sociologists are interested in. You know, how does social context vary are almost constants. You have neighborhood level variation, but you don't really have macro level societal cultural context variation. Now this would be different. If we can pull this off, we have a lot more variation at the macro level that we can then combine with an understanding of what are the micro, micro level mechanisms uh, that are happening here. 
Here is just a list of, just to show you how much variation we have across these sites on the number of important um, on the number of important um, contextual factors. You see that homicide rates are much different across these sites. You can also see that levels of social inequality are hugely different between these sites. And gender inequality varies quite a lot between Pakistan with the highest level of gender inequality and Romania in this sample. Uh, uh, is it probably it's actually surprisingly Vietnam, Vietnam with the lowest level of gender inequality. So, and, and I could go on and on. I mean, just to give you one other example of how much variation we will have, we have variation between some societies, some neighborhoods, where almost every child will grow up in an extended family with the father and the mother and other children being in the same family. Two, for other neighborhoods, other areas within the city, where the biological father being present is the exception rather than the rule. It's something that just doesn't usually happen. And so, in terms of family structures, in terms of inequality, there will be huge variation between these sites. This is the consortium, a group of people led by, led, led by a number of people in Cambridge. But I think the important thing here is that what we try to do is to put together a team of researchers that come from many different disciplines, public health, psychology, psychiatry, pediatrics, health economics, uh, and so on, and including uh, criminology. Just a few basic ideas of how, where, we, where we want to go if we find the money. Um, and, and maybe we're never going to find the money so, so for the main study. Uh, but I just want to show you what the basic idea would be. It would be the idea to have the first... That would be the big idea. 12,000 children born in the year 2020 in many different places across the world. And what happens to these children? Now for us criminologists, that would be an interesting thing to know, actually. You know, what is it in the lives of 12,000 children born in very different societies, very different contexts, and if you can follow them until age 10 or 15 or 20, uh, how well are we doing in understanding who is going into, getting into trouble and who isn't, and what can we do about it, and how can we do something about it? Uh, there is a number of other interesting things that we're trying to do. I'm not going to go into the details. I just want to mention one thing, because I was just talking about the fathers. Most longitudinal studies are just interviewing mothers. The reason, one of the main reasons is it's much easier. The fathers are just a nuisance. When it comes to longitudinal studies about the child, the fathers usually don't want to participate. Or one does They're absent. They're busy. They're doing other things. And so one of the things that we want to do, and we think this is for developmental criminology, really, really important, is to better understand what the fathers are doing and, and what is happening to them. And how we need to think about fathers in terms of prevention. We're currently working on the foundational study, so we're currently at the stage of a pilot study um, where we test just about everything that we can test with a sample of 150 pregnant women per site. We will be going into the field in January. So it's a hectic time. I can, it's, it's very hectic times. So, so what we've done over the last few months is to you know, get ethics approval in 10 different sites. 
It was about translating the questionnaires into 11 different languages um, uh, and, and organizing sorting strategies and so on. Uh, and and in, next week I will be going to a child protection summit in Manila where we bring together the mayors from each city in Manila doing a, what we call a policy summit. It, it's not going to be a big summit, I don't think hundreds of people, but it's just about bringing, bringing together policy makers telling them about, the, them about the study and involving them in the process of thinking about policy impact and, and having them on board at an early stage. Here is just one thematic focus of this first study that I want to emphasize or just highlight here uh, because it's the one thing that is it's going to be the focus of the pilot study. We're interested in the link between the maternal exposure to intimate violence during pregnancy and child outcomes. This is important because in some societies we, that are included in this study, we know that quite a substantial proportion of pregnant women are exposed to intimate partner violence. And the question is, well, does this have effect not just on the mother's well-being, but also on the well-being of the child measurable at age six months. There's been many studies that have been conducted that actually demonstrate that there is such a correlation. But one of the things that is not really well understood is what the mediating pathways are that link maternal exposure to violence to the effect. And I'm just linking a few things here. Maternal exposure to intimate partner violence could lead to higher physiological stress and that in turn could have an impact on the environment in which the fetus grows up, and that in turn could have an impact on child development. But it could also, for instance, have an effect on poor nutrition, it could have an effect on pre- and perinatal depression, and that in turn could be the causal mechanism that leads to uh, the poor child outcomes. Now you might think, well, we don't really have to understand these mechanisms, because everybody in the room will agree that we should try to reduce intimate partner violence anyways. But I think, one, unless we assume that anytime soon we can eliminate intimate partner violence, it's important to understand what the causal mechanism is, what the transmission mechanism is, so that we can address the right kind of processes that may be involved in interrupting this, this link. So this is the last slide, uh, or almost the last slide. And I just want to show you what we were trying to achieve. So we want to become uh, the first global birth court study on child psychosocial health. It's not going to be a pure criminological study. It's going to be cross boundaries, broadly focused on child psychosocial health in low and middle income countries. Uh, we want to link it to a policy impact strategy and the policy impact strategy will be focused on exposure to violence, but it also becomes increasingly clear to us that if you want to engage in reducing violence against children, you have to engage in a number of other public health topics. So again, it's not just about uh, reducing crime or violence. There are many other goals involved. We want to integrate the capacity-building approach that promotes early career scholars and South-South collaboration, um, which is quite exciting. Um, and and, and one, one of the things that are just interesting, I can, 
you're interested, I'm happy to talk about this, to develop an organizational structure that actually makes this function. If you think about the personalities of academics, I know that you're all exceptions, but generally speaking, your other academics are not quite easy to work with. Um, and so, making sure that you have a system in place where there is a good chance that people will be working together for many, many years to come um, and, and is, is quite a challenge. And we want to um, see whether we can create this organizational structure. So the pilot study is also kind of like almost a psychological experiment. Is it possible to keep roughly third, well, roughly 20 academics in one room for 18 months and working together on a weekly basis and see whether that actually works. So, so that's um, what I'm, I'm currently up to. And um, sometimes I hope that the project is not going to go any further and um, I'm <laughs> extremely uh, interesting and wide-ranging talk. We now have perfect time. Half an hour for questions. Who would like to start us off? Julie. Yeah, so I just thought you asked about modelling. This is not something the first part of your talk. So, you know, a well-researched and plausible explanation for violence is you're exposed to violence, you're subject to violence, and you therefore resort to violence. And so, um, you know, you could observe that uh, in the 50s and the 60s in Britain, uh, corporal punishment was a constant feature of schools, the criminal justice system, corporal punishment in prisons. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing, I don't know if there's reliable data on this, but punishing children in public is not deemed to be particularly offensive. Uh, you know, if you whack a kid in a supermarket now, it'll cause a riot. Uh, so there's been a huge shift in attitudes towards hitting children, uh, whether for disciplinary or other reasons. And of course, it's gone from the schools. It's gone from the prisons. Um, but at the same time, teenage violence has skyrocketed. So there are all these sort of odd anomalies in the field, and I wondered what you thought about that. About, you know, so that's sort of that's a depressing finding uh, because you know there was an intervention, stop corporal punishment, and it, it didn't have the payoff that people hoped it would have. If I'm correct, I mean, am I correct? Uh, yes. Oh. Um, I'm just trying to think about a, a clever answer to your question. First of all, I, I think you're, what you're saying is exactly true. We don't, there was all these big hopes about changing parenting and as a consequence changing child behaviours. And the evidence that this has worked in the way we thought this would work, and especially corporal punishment, has not really turned out to, to work well. And, and so I think, again, while we have... I, 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 just, it, I think it reinforces the idea 
that while in a small-scale experiment, we often find that improving parenting skills is associated with a short-term, usually short-term gain in child social skills. At the macro level, the evidence for a systematic, consistent link between changes in parenting and changes in crime levels is much less convincing, and we don't really understand what is going on. So this is not an intelligent answer, it's just saying, I think that you're pointing at the right kind of problem. And it's in line with what I'm saying, we need to understand these big trends if we are to do the right thing that actually reduces levels of violence. More of an offer than anything. So I'm the police commander in Reading, yeah. um, and I am a member of the Global Law Enforcement and Public Health Association. And the fifth international conference is in Edinburgh next year. And I sit on about three different public health boards around um, law enforcement and public health collaboration, and I run a research group on it. So the bit about you know police and public health, I think there's quite a lot going on there. Maybe discuss. I'm going to Cape Town next week to talk to the Western Cape government about uh, the law enforcement um, public health approach to reducing violence. So uh, if you're not aware of all of that, you may be, but if you're not, I'm very happy to. I wasn't aware of Eurogroup. Uh, I've just come back from Berlin where we have the um, Global Violence Prevention Alliance meeting, yeah. where, which is organised by WHO, but we've been trying for quite a while to have more people from the law enforcement side, and, and there was um, the colleagues from Glasgow were there talking about the Glasgow model. Uh, that is some, actually something that we've been trying to bring about more, yeah. and so it, it, I, I, it would be fantastic well, to learn more about what you're doing. I'm to tell you what's going on, and also on the corporal punishment thing, they criminalised it in Scotland, they haven't seen the rise in the violence that they have in England, where it's not criminalised. So there's maybe a bit about you know the, the discourse, uh, what does that discourse look like? Yeah. It might be frowned upon, but it's not criminal in England, it is in Scotland, but they've not seen the same issues, so there's maybe something there as well. Chelsea? Hello, thank you so much for your talk. <clears throat> I've learned quite a lot. Um, so my question is, uh, I suppose, a bit of a challenge on two points that you made earlier in your presentation. Um, the first one was when you showed us the map of uh, the essentially the juxtaposition between the problem and the knowledge. Um, so I want to push back once again on one point against the publishing of academic papers as um, evidence of knowledge on violence. Um, and, instances of interpersonal violence um, and to that point the decline of uh, interpersonal violence and murder rates in Western Europe um, kind of juxtaposed with the places in the world where there is exceptional violence and I think there's a huge missing causal mechanism of uh, colonialism and um, the, the relationship between the Western high income countries that we talked about and the places where there is so much violence um, in a lot of ways, the moving of that violence from the Western countries into other countries where through mechanisms, whether economic, political, socio-political, um, there are motivations for actors and militaries from those Western high-income countries 
to that facilitate and are involved in instances of violence in those other areas in the world, in Africa and Latin America and in Asia and the Middle East. Um, yeah, so it just feels like there's a there's a big gap missing and it's particularly was jarring with that juxtaposition of where the violence is. Um, and I think there was a missing relationship of, between the, the violence that's evident, that's evident that we see um, in those places. Yes, I th I, I, first of all, I think you're absolutely right that in this bigger picture of where the violence is, and I'm trying to answer the question, well, why is it where it is? The question of colonial heritage must play an important role. I don't think it's the only answer, but I think it's an important part of trying to better understand why we have this distribution. I, and I'm, but I'm also saying that I don't think it's the only topic that we need to think about. Um, for one, and I think I've tried to show this to you with the comparison between Singapore and Jamaica, there are countries that are similar in terms of their, they're not identical, but they're similar in terms of their colonial heritage, but they've gone in very different paths. Um, there are other countries, like many countries in Latin America, that haven't been colonial societies for the last 200 years. And still they have, actually for many, for a long period after there have been colonial societies, there was nothing that made them particularly valuable. Uh, Uruguay, Argentina, actually Venezuela was not known to be particularly violent until relatively recently. So I think looking at colonialism is important, but I don't think it's the only mechanism that we should be looking at. Now in terms of, I, I, I'll, I'll give you the word again uh, in, in a second. I think in terms of the second argument about this juxtaposition of where the problem is and where the knowledge is. Um, this is an... Well, let me just explain where I'm coming from. You know, I, I, I think I tend to be in terms of the potential for criminology to contribute to solutions. Not just criminology, also public health. I'm, I'm an optimist. I actually do think that knowledge can make a difference. Uh, that actually understanding what causes social problems may help to better address them. And the only thing that I was trying to show is that societies where, that are suffering from extremely high levels of violence just lack the resources to inform policymakers about what they can do to address these problems. And one of the side effects of this, for instance, can be in places like Brazil is now a good, good example, uh, but you know, Venezuela and Colombia, for instance, would be other good examples, that because there is a lack of the academic capacity to do good research, high-quality research on these issues, there is maybe a higher tendency, I'm not sure about this, maybe a higher tendency to adopt quick, punitive, strategies rather than maybe better public health policies. That was my argument. Yeah, if I could just respond, particularly on the colonialism point, um, I understand and appreciate your answer, but I think it responded as though colonialism is a discrete moment in history as opposed to an ongoing relationship that informs the way that 
countries and their economies interact with one another. Um, so even in the comparison of Singapore and Jamaica, those two countries, economically and sociopolitically, have very different interactions with the governments of Western Europe and the United States than, um, th than one another. And so I think that economic and social and political interactions do not just stop with the independence of a state from a colonial power, but that we understand the, the ways that countries interact with each other is not within a vacuum of historiography and sort of their formal ways of interacting. So I really appreciate, I guess, I was trying to just clarify where I was coming from with my point, but then I appreciate your answer. I, 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 Sorry. Just want, I, I just want to put, say one thing, uh, but I've been thinking about it for quite a long time, and I, I think it bears on your point. If we try to zoom ourselves back to 1960, right before both Jamaica and Singapore become independent, which country would we have been predicted to do better? And I've been looking at some of the evidence, I mean, nobody has done this, and we don't know, but on many indicators at that time, probably our prediction would have been that Jamaica would be doing better than Singapore. I'm not sure about this, and so, but I think my argument is that yes, we need to look at these factors, but my argument was, so I'm just trying to make, kind of to create some controversy, there are, in-house factors, there are internal dynamics, there is responsibility of the political actors within these societies that have contributed to at least exacerbating the problem that they are having. But that's not just due to colonialism. That was, that's my argument. Thank you. Yes. Okay. So, two of the slides, uh, you had information that caught my attention on um, Latin America. One of them showed a very, very high homicide rate. And another slide, a few slides on, I think, showed a very low rate of uh, intimate partner violence, or a relatively low rate of intimate partner violence. And that attracted my attention, because you would have thought those two types of offences uh, might be, have similar rates in different jurisdictions. And so I was thinking about that while you were continuing to present and wondered whether part of the story of explaining those two different rates might be found in, in drug use, drug trafficking, especially across borders around Latin America, and the violence associated with drugs. And given that's one of the most obvious areas where public policy and health policy in particular uh, cross over with, with crime policy, I, I wondered if you had... I wondered why you hadn't said anything about it, I suppose, about drug trafficking, drug use, and, and how drug use is related to violence, because it seems like an obvious area of interdisciplinary interest. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree um, that we need to think about large illegal markets, not just drugs, but maybe other illegal markets. I think the and, and one of the markets that I just want to bring up is small arms markets, which I think is just as important. Because one of the drivers that leads to the very high levels of homicide in Latin America is not necessarily just high levels of violence. When we look at the indicators of bullying, Latin America is not particularly high in terms of school bullying. When we looked at indicators of child problem behaviors, even earlier, Latin America has not pro particularly problematic children. 
There is something happening at the ages 16 to 20 that drives up these homicide rates in particular. The problem is not lack of laws. All Latin American countries have absolutely exemplary laws that prohibit the use and dissemination of firearms. The problem is they're there, they're used, and they are widely responsible for the homicides, and then you have these killing, killing mechanisms. They are linked to the drug traffic, to drug trafficking. Uh, I'm just want to, I'm just taking the opportunity to come back to Jamaica because it's an interesting problem. Initially, the violence problems in some of the poor neighborhoods in Kingston were not li linked to drug trafficking. They were initially linked to protection rackets against political opponents, uh, uh, political opponents. Drug trafficking came in later in the 1970s and it used the gang power structures that had already been established and so there was a different economy kind of like using the structures that were already there but it was not the very beginning of the problem. So, so I, I, I just think we need to be a little bit cautious about just assuming that the drugs are the only problem. And I think one of the things, I, I just want to finish with this, one of the things I don't think we really understand very well at this moment, and it would be really important to understand it better, is what the right drug policy is. There's probably a wide assumption in this room, I don't know, that legalizing drugs is a good policy. Now, and I'm, whenever we talk politics, I'm, I'm absolutely in favor of legalizing cannabis, for instance. But, when you look at the current evidence in Uruguay, it doesn't look that fantastic. It doesn't look, not look that fantastic at all. And so, there have been huge promises made. There have been poor evaluations. Nobody has really thought about doing a proper evaluation about what is happening during this transition, and the evidence doesn't look that convincing. And so I'm just, you know, those of you who would now have liked to say, well, we know what the problem is and we know what we need to do, I'm just warning, it looks like there may be somewhere down the line something backfiring and the evidence just, just not hold up to the huge expectations that some people have in the legalization of cannabis. And just to add this, the major number of the drug, of, of, of the homicides are not related to cannabis, they're related to cocaine. And the question would then really be, would there be consensus to legalize cocaine? So that's the tricky one. Well, just to add to this debate, the, I, I, I think the discussion between criminalise and not criminalise is a wrong discussion. Uh, that's that's a seen you know, dual worldview that just doesn't correspond to the reality. There are dozens of different models within within a criminalisation regime and there are dozens of different models within a legalization regime. So it's much more useful to think about what model of regulation one thinks is.
Professor. Is that not the crux of the debate? They're saying it's not the criminal law issue, it's the welfare issue, and we're changing the way in which we regulate. Yep. Whereas the legalisation debate is more along the lines of everyone should have access to it and we should be allowed to sell it. Yeah. So there's difference. Um, so that's what I mean in terms of moving it out of the criminal debate into the public health. And in criminologists and public health professionals? Yes, yes, yes. Absolutely, yeah. That this is exactly where the public health and criminology need to talk to each other. Yeah. Question about the cities you chose. Just what criteria did you use to choose the cities? And if you have Jamaica, but then the violence in Venezuela, Brazil, Colombia, Mexico, maybe have some particularities that could be very interesting to study there. Yes. Well, I think we should particularly mention Latin America is a big gap. We have Brazil, we have Pelotas in, in, in the sample, but for reasons that we just couldn't predict, uh, it fell out of the study. We think this is a major gap. We want to try and find a new site, but at the moment for the pilot we're just in the middle of a train that's running at quite high speed and this is not the right moment to think about recruiting a new site because if you think about it, it needs careful evaluation to find the right people. Um, finding the right people, that, broadly speaking the criteria was to cover all the major areas in low and middle income countries across the world. The second very important criterion was, do we have some face evidence that the governments in these countries might be interested in violence prevention policy? So several of these countries are so-called pathfinder countries, which is kind of like a global movement to address violence against children. And four out of five actually now out of these eight countries are so-called pathfinder countries. So we believe that we would we find open doors in these countries to actually do something. And the third and probably most important criteria was are the nice people that we can work with? <laughs> uh, it's not just being nice, but it's also being good academics. So, and, and you know, as, if you draw a Venn diagram, nice people and academics, that's really hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> but but that, if you think about how, you know, wanting to work with a large group of people over an extended period of time, People who are willing, committed to work in such a project to have the requisite skills already to go into this, that's not quite easy. So we have two big debates. 
And we will talk about this when we meet in Manila. One is Latin America, shall we have another site? And the other one, shall we have another site? In the UK, I mean, that's, that's at the moment the only discussion. But we had other discussions about a site in Switzerland. Depends a little bit on where you want to get funding to make decisions about it. Uh, we were thinking about a site in, in a Scandinavian country. Um, there are two reasons why we haven't done this, and I think it's, I, I, I just want to highlight the second reason. Well, I first want to mention the first reason. It's purely pragmatic. If you think about these eight sites, if you add a site in Europe, you're adding about a third of the cost. So in terms of just how much this costs, it's usually much more expensive. Now that's just on the pragmatic side. But there is a much more interesting and I think important argument in terms of the project dynamics. If you add a site in, and that goes back to colonialism by the way, I think, if you add a site, especially if you add a site like Switzerland, or you know, that's what we were initially thinking, or Scandinavian country, then you end up having a dynamic where there is, you know, the beacon of welfare state and doing everything right and having solved all the problems, and everything is or is is focused on the comparison between this affluent country. And I think, in terms of the dynamics that have been happening so far. I think the absence of an affluent country was actually a benefit rather than a, a deficit because it, it, it strengthened the idea of a South-South collaboration uh, and learning across sites in the Global South rather than everybody thinking about, well, what nice evidence do they have and, and what can we learn from a site in, in, in Europe, for instance. I think there is, by the way, I mean, just, just, just to conclude, I mean, this is an interesting debate also to be had uh, about the Inspire framework, and there is a, quite an interesting discussion here around a number of complicated issues that we could pursue further. Um, one is that some of these goals in the INSPIRE framework are perceived in some of the sites as very welcome, and in some of the other sites they're perceived as being quite biased in what they focus on. And, and so there is a lot of sensitivities in different places about, well, what does it mean, you know, that the Centers for Diseases Control in the United States have been involved in developing these goals and are now kind of like globally disseminating what they think is the right talent training program, what they think is the right kind of like social skills program. Is this actually true or is it not true? And, and, and should one think differently about this? And that's, that's a, uh, a, an interesting dilemma and I'm not always sure that what the recipes that are in inspired are any better than what some of the countries that we have in the study are already doing. Okay, well, thank you very much once again.